Thank you all for being here tonight. Uh, welcome to our discussion of the future of work. And welcome to the San Francisco Chronicles. It's all political podcast, which we are recording live from, Ooh. from Postmates headquarters in San Francisco. I want to introduce our panelists. Jim Araby is the strategic campaigns director at the United Food and Commercial Workers Western States hey, Council Local 5. Jim Araby. And Vikram Meyer is the Vice President of Public Policy and Strategic Communications right here at Postmates. Vikram, let's hear it. And I want to say a, a, a few words about these two guys. I've known them both for a while. And uh, Jim, a little bit longer. They, they are both smart, politically savvy folks who are not doctrinaire. And they both have a good handle on how the world is changing. So we're lucky that they're both here to talk about not only about AB5, but about the future of work. Uh, because as we all know, what happens in California ripples out to the rest of the nation eventually. Um, this, is a, this is a very complex issue, as you all know, and it's uh, the latest chapter is unfolding in real time today. As a matter of fact, as we're recording this, uh, the assembly passed AB5, and now it goes to Governor Newsom, uh, who, said, who has said he supports it and will sign it. But that is not the end of the story. Newsom also said this week that he wants to continue to negotiate with the ride-sharing companies. And just today, like hours ago, uh, Uber's top attorney pledged that its drivers will remain independent contractors even after the law takes place, even after the law takes effect on January 1st. And if they don't get uh, some kind of exemption or new rule in the next few weeks or months, Uber and Lyft and DoorDash now plan to take their case directly to voters with a ballot initiative in November 2020, and they're collectively ready to spend $90 million on it. And even in California, that's a lot of money. Um, so let's, let's back up for a second here. And, and, and Jim, uh, take us back to a minute. Why do we need a law, uh, this, this AB5? Why do we need a piece of legislation? There was a court case that said that contractors should be employees if they meet certain criteria. Why do we even need this law? Well, you know, I think you need a law for a couple of reasons. One is you need to establish, you know, a floor, you know, on the ruling. The ruling is the law, but, you know, that law can then be challenged in court. And why not actually codify what actually was said by the Supreme Court, number one. Number two, courts shouldn't make laws, right? Courts are, are used to interpret laws. Legislature makes laws. And so I think you know, uh, Assemblywoman Gonzalez decided that, you know, if this is the way that we need to make this a law. And I think, you know, and we can get into the more details about what the, what the law really means. But, you know, it's, it's really important for us is, is if this is one way in which Americans and, and the world is beginning to work, you know, then these companies that are in this space also need to contribute to the, the greater good in society, right? It's, 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 you know, the way that government and politics and society works is the government, the individual, and the companies have to participate in one. And I think that you can think about that as a basis for what this law really means. We can get more into that later. Well, what, what would it mean to the everyday worker? How would their lives change? So I think a couple of things, the way the lives would change. Number one is if you are classified as an independent contractor, that means your employer is not responsible for workers' comp, not responsible for uh, providing any sort of unemployment insurance, is not responsible for uh, you know minimum wages. You know you don't pay into Social Security. You don't pay into Medicare, right? 
And so those are all things that, you know, traditional employers have obligations to pay into as well as the worker, right? Everyone pays into that system in, in a system which they're all independent contractors, all that responsibility falls on the individual in the state and the company pays nothing into it. And so I think this law, AB5, will say, hey, look, you know, you gig, but it's more than just gig companies, right? It's more than just the platform companies we're talking about, but you also have a responsibility to the state to participate in this system, right? So you're going to have to pay something, right? You know, to, to make us whole. And how, I mean, how would it affect the consumers? Does that mean I'm going to be spending more on my lift ride? Does that mean I'm going to be spending more for, well, I wouldn't be spending more for a haircut, but uh, others <laughs> who have hair would be spending more for a haircut. What, what does this mean to consumers? I think it's, I don't know right now, to be honest. I, I don't know what the answer is on that. I think it's yet to be seen. I mean, you could also ask the other question is right now the economy is doing really well. People have a lot, especially in the Bay Area and other places, people have a lot of disposable income. So there's big demand for these services that provide convenience. What happens when, the, when a recession comes and these de demand isn't as high and people are saying, you know what, I'm not going to pay $8 to have Instacart come to my house. You know, I'm going to actually go and pick up groceries. I'm going to pay that because I don't have that disposable income, right? Uh, so what happens to those workers, right? When all of a sudden you have all these people that are now depending on these jobs uh, as a supplemental income and now there's not a demand. So then they don't get that supplemented income, but yet they don't have unemployment insurance. They don't have all these other benefits that they would if they worked in a traditional employment. So I just think all of these questions, we don't know. I mean, I would assume that if there's additional costs, uh, the companies in order to survive are going to sort of figure out how to pass off some of that cost. And so I just think this is all about, you know, what that means in the future. I don't have the direct answer. To Becca, what, is this, what is this law that, or it's not a law yet, the governor still has to sign it. As we said, he has been supportive of it. What will, how will this change business for, for industry, for the tech companies, for smaller businesses that might be effective, independent contractors? What's, what's the effect going to be? Yeah, I think it, it starts by one of the worst kept secrets in Sacramento during this entire process was that companies like ours um, or other peers and competitors in the space um, were focused on trying to get exempted uh, like 24 other sectors have through AB5. Our attention in the last eight months has not really been on AB5. AB5, as many of you know, codifies existing law that was handed down by the California Supreme Court 15 months ago. We've been dealing with that environment. It still poses a risk to us, but all those sectors that were looking for carve-outs via AB5, they were looking to be treated under the old world standard, the Borello standard prior to Dynamex. What we've been trying to focus on is workers. We're actively trying to ask ourselves, okay, we have a business model where, at least at Postmates, north of 80% of our uh, couriers are on the platform three to five hours a week. That's very, very low engagement and util utilization rate on the platform. We also have a platform where 25% of our couriers are um, minority, uh, sorry, Hispanic Americans, uh, identify as Latinx, 25% identify as Black Americans. And so when an, an extraordinarily high number of them on the platform have been either uh, immigrants that have DACA protections in the past, that have had that formerly incarcerated that are on the platform for certain nonviolent drug offenses. So when we talk about access to work and low barrier of entries to work, what our focus on in the last eight months in Sacramento was, how do we preserve that low barrier of entry to work so someone can earn an income, have a safety net for them, but then how do we build benefits on top and raise standards? 
How do we raise wage standards? If AB5 would allow us as a state of California, or as a company rather, to comply with a $12 minimum wage in the state of California, and our average payout in the city of San Francisco for a courier is $21.50 per hour prior to tips, then is that actually raising standards for workers? If numerous 2020 candidates around the country were mentioning that we should have access to a voice of the worker, a seat at the table, call that a sectoral bargaining approach, a collective bargaining approach, but AB5, even one signed, is still at odds with federal labor law, how is that a seat at the table? So I think what we notice along this way is that regardless of your politics and your position on AB5, hundreds of thousands of gig workers would still be lost without that elevated collective prospects that we ought to, as companies, be seeking. And in order to do that, we need to reform some serious laws, and we as companies need to raise industry standards. And we're really encouraged that, that Governor Newsom wants to keep that attention and focus in the process they get out this morning. We should also say that this law could affect what, one out of every eight California workers, is it? One out of every 10? By, by some counts, we hear that there's like yeah, two to four million independent contractors. By our projections, in terms of just delivery across gig companies, the, the Postmates of the world, the Reeds of the world, we're talking about 450,000 uh, couriers, to say nothing of ride-sharing drivers as a separate total count as well. And it's, we've had conversations in the past about how this would affect the flexibility of workers. You know, we all know that uh, uh, Lyft, work, Lyft drivers also drive for Uber. Uh, you might have someone uh, working a shift uh, at one company and then going across the street and working somewhere else. Would this affect this? If this were to become law, could they still do that? Absolutely. I mean, th this is also one of the um, most interesting debates that played out in the public domain, but I, I think the truth didn't actually uh, see, see, the, see the sunlight here in a true way. And that is, when you talk about flexibility, there are a lot of folks on, on one side of the AB5 debate that will say, you can have flexibility in a worker arrangement that's full-time employee. You can have a shift worker at a hospital that works flexibly. You can have someone that works uh, as a, at Starbucks that works flexibly and chooses their hours. But there's a huge difference in this for the following reason. If I sign up to work at an 8 a.m. shift at Starbucks, I can't also at 8.30 go across the street and work at Pete's because they're paying a few more extra dollars for pouring lattes that hour and then come back to Starbucks and then say, hey, actually, you know what, boss, I need to change my shift out. I have homework to do or I have a family matter to do. That is literally the level of unprecedented autonomy you see in these platforms. And it's not just the novelty of this technology. This is the fact that anyone with an internet connection and an idea can really move across jobs and be their own entrepreneur. So if you zoom out of the gig economy, if you're talking about people stitching together numerous low-wage jobs or even highly skilled white-collar jobs, you need a safety net to undergird that form of flexibility. So our proposal has been retain that flexibility. Don't let us keep the independent contractor status because you think we're keeping wages low. Retain that flexibility, but build on top elevated standards of pay, benefits, and, and, and other protections. Where do you guys differ on that? Where, does, I, where, I, does, where do the union, sure. the labor and, and industry differ on that, those points? So anytime I hear the words flexibility, efficiency, maximal you know, efficiency and everything, to me, that sort of gets my back up a little bit <laughs> because it's sort of like, we only want people working when there's work. Okay, fair. Uh, and we'll pay you X amount. So like, you know, if the demand is low for a delivery driver at 2 p.m., we're going to pay you, I'm just giving numbers here, you know, $3 a delivery, but the demand's much higher at 11 p.m., we're going to give you $9 because there's, you know, there's higher demand. 
what does that mean for your life as a person, right? Like if we're going to design a whole economic system and a job system based on supply and demand, you take out the humanity of part of that question. You know, we represent grocery workers, right? Our union represents, has a lot of grocery workers. We represent 100,000 grocery workers in California. If a grocery chain came up to us and said, you know, we have people in the store from 4 to 4.30, and then again from 6.30 to 8, and then again from 10 to 12, that's when we want people to be scheduled. Now, you know, Vikram, you can work all those different hours, but we're not going to pay you in between that other time. Who benefits from that, right? You know, and, and to me, it's sort of like, well, I think there is, a, there is a case to be made around how to create better efficiencies around standard, around, around when and how people work and giving people the option to opt in and opt out. I've talked to plenty of Lyft and Uber drivers and I say, what do you like best about this? And they're like, hey, I don't have a boss. Even though they kind of do because the algorithm's the boss, it tells you like where you have to go and when. And so, so, so they have a little bit more autonomy. So autonomy is a good thing. But you know, if, you're, if you're trying to piece together you know, 40, 50, 60 hours, and I'm not saying people do on the platform, they do the supplement, which is a whole other conversation of why you have all these people want supplemental income, what's actually going on in the economy that we need people to have these second and third jobs. That's a whole other question that we should get into. But if, if you're saying it's, it's, it's okay to have people knit together these different places and pay you according to where the demand is, while I get that on sort of an intellectual level, as it plays out in people's lives, it creates all kinds of havoc in certain people's lives and only certain people are ultimately going to be on it. And so I just think there has to be a way to have a conversation about how we balance those out and actually fundamentally how we actually create independent voice for the workers in these systems too. You know, not just driven by company, you know, company drive committees and everything which are created with the, you know, good intent, but having an independent voice and independent worker voice and that, that is not just, you know, beholden to the company that can say, we're not going to do this anymore. I think that's important in this conversation. Yeah. Now Lyft said today that uh, they also said drivers might only be allowed to work for one ride hailing service at a time. Do you see that, Vikram, do you see that being the standard? Other, other companies would like, would Postmates be the same way? I mean, is that, would they face the same situation? Well, I, I can't speak to what Lyft was staying there, but, but what I, I can say zooming out is that when you take a, take a look at uh, California employment law, every four hours you're entitled to a rest and meal break, which means that if for Postmates, you have a lot of couriers working just three to five hours, but we need to fill these shifts of four hour slots then we're gonna want the more reliable worker that works and demonstrates a work of stringing four hours in a row, multiple jobs in a row. The college student that does the one-off 30-minute job here for beer money, and maybe we don't see him or her for a couple of weeks and then comes back, that's not the person we wanna uh, um, fill in that shift. So if I'm looking as a company, if we're looking for shift workers to be reliably across a number of hours, then I'm gonna start exerting control on that worker in a way that we haven't before. Now, perhaps that's a good thing and that's the debate, but when you start exerting that control, that means fewer jobs to the one-off college student and more jobs to the more fuller-time worker that can show me that they have four hours. Or arguably, and this is where we get really concerned, if it has been such a low barrier of entry to work to different communities in need that need to you know, be able to pay for that 400, million, uh, 400 unexpected dollar medical expense, but we're not surfacing those jobs up and we're saying we want the best background checks. We don't want anyone that's had any kind of point moving violation on their, on their car. Or we want you to have showcase a certain educational background. All of these things come into bear that exert flexibility, or sorry, that exert more control. And I think maybe to your point about that statement, that that is going to chafe at the version of this business model we know now. 
that being said, I completely agree. Like we need to, as an industry, and I think this is the admirable thing and the unexpected thing of this last legislative session, you saw at least six, probably more gig economy competitors that are, you know, battle it out in the marketplace day in and day out, almost like push out these proposals, which aren't done deals, but they speak to let's elevate earning standards, let's elevate uh, debt benefit standards, and let's do this in different ways. And I think that's pretty remarkable. Let's talk about some of the places where you two, speaking for your respective uh, <laughs> silos or industries or whatever, uh, agreed on some things, some general principles where you didn't think you would before. Well, I think it was, you know, it's admirable for how, to have companies come out and say they'll pay $21 an hour. They're going to provide a certain level of benefits. I think that's all very admirable in sort of, in sort of the, in the, and the broader, like, this is what we're going to do. It's much different when they actually do it and what that means. And you know, again, I say, you know, because things are, because demand is high for a lot of these services, what happens once those demands aren't as high, right? I mean, we do have, you know, ups and downs in our economy. And so what does that mean for these $21 an hour commitments? And what does that mean for these benefit commitments? And what does that mean for, you know, all these other commitments that are made right now? And is that commitment real? Like, you know, I represent a union, uh, you got to put that in a contract, right? And then I got to bargain over, I got to bargain over the terms of that contract. And, and then if there are changes, then I need to bargain over those changes, right? You know, it's one thing to say, I'm going to do this, the benevolent, you know, companies, and I'm not saying the intention's wrong. I actually think that's a, that's a good thing, but it's another thing when times get tough and now you have to negotiate around, you know, changing these things, is that benevolence still going to be there, right? When the investor money dries up, when the, you know, when the private equity subsidies dry up and you actually have to start turning a profit, like how, what does that all mean for some of these commitments now? That to me, I just approach it with skepticism being a labor organizer for 20 years and dealing with a lot of companies that make a lot of commitments until we actually get into actual negotiations. And, and I think that's, I mean, to the point of, of this question, Ali, on the slide behind us, <coughs> can we actually work together? This is going to be a vital set of partnerships moving forward. Uh, because even if we claim, all right, under Obamacare right now, there, you unlock healthcare, I think, above 30 hours of working. Um, if we're going to talk about this form of work and we say in a, in a room, should we unlock that for a gig worker that's working 25 hours or 20 hours? Because we're having a conversation with workers and labor and the government and industry. The only way we're going to be able to do that is to get into a room. And as you Absolutely. said, that, that extends far beyond just gig economy classification, right? That's why is healthcare so high? Well, maybe Congress shouldn't strip the ACA individual mandate. Well, how are we going to deal with AI bias and how do we train around that? How do we upskill workers? The building trades um, uh, labor union, which was um, hotly featured in the arc of this debate, at least in terms of their position on this in Sacramento, construction workers have been facing automation for generations, the night, you know, the late 80s, early 90s in terms of building homes. So they've been using apprenticeship programs um, that now much of the rest of the country, including Obama's Department of Labor and Trump's Department of Labor, like to turn on. And so are there lessons learned we can import across a whole range of workers? And I think if you look at Germany or if you look at um, the Swiss, like they will always encourage companies to take the state of the art and share that with worker training organizations or the universities. So that way they can back into an entire pipeline of training workers. And that, I think, is our commitment. And that is what I hope happens regardless of this debate. So I just think the other element in all of this, too, from our side is it's all about power, power to, power to influence the way things are done. And everything you outlined in, in Europe is exactly true. And part of it is unions have a lot of power to negotiate around these terms, right? You know, and, and, 
And here in the United States, it, you know, it depends on where you are in the United States, right? But I would say the one thing, even, even the basic W-2 worker has some semblance of power, right? When you're a 1099 worker, you're a contract worker, and all of a sudden you just get shut off the app, you have no power to get back on that app, right? You have no power to, you know, get through to, to say like this, you had an angry, you had an angry, you know, customer that decided they were going to give you a bad review and report you. And all of a sudden, I'm giving you extreme examples, no, right? Sure. But you have, you have very little power, right? So fundamentally, in this whole conversation, in the whole future of work conversation, I think it's about how do average everyday people that work have some semblance of control over their life, right? And how do we actually create, you know, off ramps for people to have these discussions at a place where they can influence their work, right? And I, I think that is something that's underneath all of this sort of political moment we're in too, around these differences in inequality and you know, these huge things where more and more people have less and less and less and less people controlling more and more. I think that's also underneath this conversation related to status of work and gig companies and who has control and who benefits and who doesn't. You know, these are all big questions. You know, and if we can partner, and I think we can, I'm hopeful. I mean, Vikram and I have had a lot of conversations. I've had others. You know, I think there's a way, but we have to, we have to both sort of put on the table, like, what are the terms of the debate? And I think AB5 sets a good level for terms of debate related to status. You, know, you don't think it's going to kill any, any uh, ability for you, for, your, for you guys to work together in the future? I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to The Future of Work, recorded live at Postmates on Wednesday night. We'll have more after a break. Welcome back. Let's get back to our conversation at Postmates. Uh, Andrew Yang, one political, uh, one presidential candidate, is, is probably talking about the future of work more than anyone else. Uh, you know, he's pulling a 2%, but, you know, he's, at least he's talking about it. <laughs> they qualify. Uh, yes, he's qualified. He'll be on the stage tomorrow night. Because um, people that vote don't, know, don't want to think about the future, Joe. <laughs> yes. So, but, you know, he's, he talks a lot about AI jobs that are lost. All the, 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 he uses the example of truck driving jobs that we lost. How do you see industry and labor working together to deal with how our economy is going to be reshaped and how all the, the job losses that we hear about coming from uh, AI? So first, I think one of the biggest uh, lessons learned, and, and my colleague Vicky and I were, uh, were trading notes about this earlier, is that from this process, we've seen other states, I think Governor Cuomo um, also has you know, expressed an interest in running a similar process for protecting gig workers, um, Washington State, other markets all over the country. Uh, we've learned that government needs to be an early and often convener in a major way. Uh, I think that to the credit of labor and industry, at least in the early days of this debate, folks were getting in a room. They, they were not agreeing to everything. There were no final um, set in stone deal terms, but they were envisioning ideas together, brainstorming ideas together, whiteboarding together. I think that was helpful to a certain extent, but we've got a fiduciary responsibility and unit economics where we can only go so far and maybe what we give. And of course, um, when we're talking about labor, we're talking about 60, 70 years worth of investments and fights and organizing that have helped build the middle class in this country. So it's not, we can't just say, hey, can you do this because we're cool and we're innovative in our app and there's a TechCrunch article about us. 
I think what we need to do is make sure then that there's a referee, that there's a process-based referee that can facilitate some of that. I think that's going to be really, really important. The second thing is, I think there, there are numerous ways for, for us to work together. I mean, certainly, if you a classic example is that our, our colleagues at Square, um, which also happened to previously own Caviar, but on the Square side of their business, payments processing. When you talk about um, the Supreme Court last year, Janus, and concerns about union membership, putting that debate aside for a second, there's probably a way of modernizing the way that union dues are gathered and collected. Maybe there's a, a payments integration worth exploring there in some capacity. Similarly, when it comes to automation and offsets, um, my colleague, Biggie, uh, some of you guys may have read that San Francisco was the first, or sorry, Postmates was the first um, uh, company to get a permit in the city of San Francisco to operate robotics permits. And we've noticed that the veterans hiring organization here, Swords to Plowshare, um, places or is able to place a lot of post 9-11 Army vets and Navy vets because drone teleoperation is very consistent with some of these robotics operations. That's an area where we understand what the skills are. We can then export that out to an interested union. Maybe it's the Teamsters to understand how that skill is done. But unless we actually commit to more of that work moving forward, I'm worried about it. And I'll just say one final thing. I think on the policy conversation, one thing that bums me out the most as a, a card-carrying member of the Democratic Party is to see so many 2020 candidates be so quick to make endorsements about uh, you know, a position in the state and local level. No, nothing's wrong with it, but like, let's then understand how this is consistent with their policy positions, right? Take a, take a millennial, they're Gen Zers, they're shifting jobs super quickly. Um, somebody that, that is for a public option on Obamacare is for a healthcare benefit decoupled from the employment that they have. Similarly, on the way of Medicare for all, if you're for that position, that's decoupled from the benefits and the employment that you have. And I think we need to square the ideology with the political conniptions that can be above. And what I would say, Joe, is I think the sort of, just walk it back a little bit here, the idea like that the robots are coming and AI is going to destroy the world and all that, I think that's sort of very overblown. It's very fear-induced, fear right? You know, there are going to be jobs that are uh, going to be eliminated. And there are going to be jobs that we know that are going to be created. And, you know, this, I mean, you know, I'm not a, doomsday you know doomsday you know person on that i think we do have to have some plan though of adaptability and how we actually deal with those issues but one thing just in terms of this idea of like how work is changing you know i looked at the bureau of labor statistics because that's what i do because i'm you know i haven't announced <laughs> so, somebody's got to yeah. do bls.gov go it's very interesting <laughs> so uh but the bureau of labor statistics had this um you know did this thing around how many what percentage of the overall labor force is in contract work, right, gig work. And the number has remained consistent in every single survey, right, from 95 to 2005 to 2017, it's roughly about 10.7% of the work uh, that, people, that people do is, is considered contract work. So you still have 89% of the workforce in full-time W-2 jobs, right? So it's a very different, now the, the, the underneath that though, there are a lot of people that are doing second jobs in this, plat like in this platform, right? So there is, you know, those numbers and the BLS said they're going to have, you know, it's hard to get that data. We don't have hard data on Right, we don't have hard data on that yet. But so, so the bigger question to me is not only how do we adapt to technological changes, how do we actually create, how do we create lifelong learners in, in, in education? It's not just about going to K-12 and get your four-year degree and you're done at 22. It's about changing the culture of learning, you know, as we move forward and adaptability and skills development. And our educational infrastructure does not deal with that, right? I have a 10-year-old daughter. And everyone's like, oh, she's going to go to college and then you're done. It's like, no, you're going to be a life. Like, how do we promote lifelong learning, 
lifelong adaptability and actually put resources into that as all this technology is just in our face, right? How do we actually adapt to that? How do we create innovation around that? And how do workers have a voice and power in that discussion, I think is really important. And then the final thing I'll say is getting back to the, you know, proponent of Medicare for all, proponent of creating sort of an underneath safety, safety net that allows for people to have more mobility and flexibility in today's world. But people have to pay into that, right? You know, and if it's just on the backs of workers and it's just on the backs of government and companies don't pay their fair share, if companies don't pay their fair tax, if companies don't, you know, do those things, we're never going to get to that, right? We're going we're gonna to get to a place where it's on the individual and the government and then ultimately the individual is going to be frustrated because the government's not providing the service Right. So then they don't believe in government. Right. So then we're left with, you know, a libertarian dystopia. I, you know, and, and I don't think dark there. OK, <laughs> so, anyway. okay. let's uh, let's go to some of your questions. Hi, <laughs> excuse me. Hi, my name is Karen. And I just want to pick up on what you were just saying about contribution to the social safety net uh, and what you said before that about 80 percent or 80 some percent of work still being as employees. So I'm an employer of employees, and uh, it's not just the state. There are many, many, many employers who are contributing care to workers beyond their contribution to our companies. Mm -hmm. If they get hurt, if they are disabled, if they are unemployed, we have made our contribution. And we are finding that uh, there's a new sector competing with us that's doing essentially the same work, in my case, delivering food to people, mm -hmm. that is offered an unfair competitive advantage through this model. So it's not, it's, you know, workers are being exploited, our workers are being, uh, are, are sort of losing competitively as our businesses are. And I worry about the long-term impacts to workers more broadly, not just the workers that you have in your, you know, in your contract base today. So I hear what you're saying, Bigram, about caring for workers and wanting to give access, but I think that has to be contextualized more broadly. And also you need to include the, the sort of uncare, unfair competitive dimension. I wonder if you can comment on that issue of why you can pay workers one price and I should pay them a different price to deliver food to people. Yeah. Is it okay to answer? Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I think it's an excellent question. And first, just kind of referencing what Joe mentioned at the top in terms of the news making event of the day, um, when the governor mentioned to the Wall Street Journal this morning that there ought to be a process that continues the conversation well beyond AB5, particularly for these platforms. I think that's exactly the environment that and this type of conversation we're seeking to have about how to make sure that there isn't an uneven patchwork of benefits, wages, et cetera, paid out. But to the heart of your point, I do think that the only way we're going to get around that, that, that notion or that perceived notion of unfairness is to set industry-wide standards or, or across this type of work. Um, I, you, we have those, but absolutely. But, they are labor laws, and I think what right now, though, what you have is because there is, so there, there are two facts here to consider. Um, as I mentioned earlier, when it comes to labor laws, there are two befuddling aspects about California labor laws that don't square with what our workers tell us. 78% of all couriers who are on the Postmates platform get paid out through something called instant deposits. 
That means that they sign up to be a Postmate, they make the delivery, 55 minutes, the cash is in their bank account. Under California labor law, disbursements of pay have to come with the two-week pay stub. So all of a sudden, our potential enforcement under AB5's consideration would be at odds with how at least 75% or north of our couriers want to be able to get paid. That's a benign example, but I guess what it points to is that there are a lot of lingering elements of California labor law and U.S. labor law that aren't make, squaring with the heterogeneous way of work these days. I'm not saying it's the right way, but I'm saying I think go, sifting through and combing through all those regulations, elevating those standards and making sure that we're all operating from a base playing field would probably be meaningful in order to turn the page on what you And what are some, most labor laws were written many years ago, 100 years ago. What are, is there another one that you can think of that, that needs to be tweaked in light of the, this, this new economy? I don't know if this is the definitive concept, but just consider also OSHA requirements. Uh, you'll notice and when you go to you know, any office that there are safety posters that are posted up in compliance with OSHA. Um, all offices uh, have to have lactation room standards. It may not necessarily make sense for lactation room standards to be applied when your office is a, is a mobile device. I think this is not to say that we should call out the most absurd edge cases, but this is, goes to show that when it comes to the fact that in California, you're still a 10, you might be seen as a W-2 under certain laws, but the IRS still views gig workers as 1099s. Even something like, do they file a W-2 here and a 1099 miscellaneous in, in the federal government? Those are the questions we're seeking to have, but I think they only happen if labor comes into a room, industry comes into a room, and we have this conversation in a multi-stakeholder way. In the back. Hey there, I'm William. So two quick questions for the Postmates guy. So one, is Postmates going to put any money into this ballot initiative that Uber, uh, Lyft, and Post DoorDash are putting 90 million in to try and kill AB5. And the second one is Tony West, the Uber general counsel, came out today and said effectively they're not going to obey the law. Does Postmates plan to obey the law or to break the law once it passes on January 1? Thank you. Yeah, I'll start with the second. Um, we're, we're here at Postmates headquarters in San Francisco. Um, we have always been legally operating and pre-Dynamex in California, and we have continued to legally operate uh, post-Dynamex here in California, um, which is why we are so eager to continue our conversation with the governor's office based off of the comments that he made today to make sure that we're creating a new process for workers moving forward. Um, I think that our commitment, our CEO wrote this in an op-ed uh, just a few weeks ago, has always been to exhaust every single legislative process and every single labor conversation we can. And our commitment is to ensure that whatever we do, that we're able to be in a room with labor and have a conversation about each of these elements of the potential deal for gig workers. Are you going to put money into the uh, ballot initiative? Yeah, no, yes. sorry. That, I, I, that's what I was speaking to. I, we've always said that our number one commitment is to exhaust the legislative process and a labor conversation process. And given that the governor of California just pointed out that that process that we've been a part of for the last eight months is, go eight months is going to continue past September 13th, that's this Friday, the end of session, that is what we're continuing to focus on and we're going to continue to engage through that process. Is that, yeah, would, would, would that be a yes or a no? That's a, we're going to continue to engage <laughs> in that process. Okay, so you can continue talking, no, no commitment yet on cash. Just to follow up on that question, um, so if I, if, if I you know, read the press reports and everything else and understand that it's going to be probably a $160 million pilot initiative on both sides, I, I take that sum of money into account. I think about the workers that you both are, are lobbying for. Yeah. Um, couldn't that money, money be better well spent 
in other areas as far as finding compromise. I look at the the bridge event tonight and the future work and can industry and labor work together. Um, how come camp compromise can't be reached and, and why is it going to cost both company or both, you know, both industries $160 million? Like, isn't that money better spent focusing on the, the workers and everybody else? I mean, I, I would say absolutely. And I would say that, you know, you know, when, uh, you know, we think the governor will sign AB five, I think it, it sets another deal term to go back into negotiations and try to figure out how to deal with these issues related to AB five, both from, the labor perspective and also the industry perspective. And I'll just, I'll just say one thing. Number one, you know, the, the, the number one thing about AB5 that labor was most concerned with is the fact that every year the state loses $7 billion from this classification of workers. That's $7 billion that could go into helping pay for our underfunded healthcare system, our underfunded schools, right? There's a lot of money, right? So we need to get back to that. And then secondly, how we then go into these negotiations related to how to classify, how to how to deal with you know, creating independent worker voice. I think there's a lot of space to have those discussions related to that. But you know, again, I think going back to the, this young lady over here that was saying about unfair competition, I think it's really important to understand, and if I were to rephrase that and tell me if I'm wrong, it's sort of like businesses that work under the, the guidelines and rules of W-2 and other auspices have all these other things they have to do you know, related to employment taxes, payroll taxes, all that, which you know, their competitors in the gig space don't, right? So solving that issue was the biggest, I would say, concern. And second to that is also making sure that the workers also are made whole. And I think from there, let's have a discussion. I think we're open to, you know, I know we've had discussions that we're open to figuring out, is there a pathway so we don't go down and spend, you know, $160 million and you all get a million commercials and everything else. But I will say, we're also not afraid to spend the money. 98, 2005, and 2013, people came after labor and, every, and they spent hundreds of millions of dollars on an initiative and we won every single time. There are 2.1 million union members in the state. There are 4 million working families in the state. I think we're, we feel secure if we could have the right conversation and need be to go down that road, but we'd rather not. And, and I think in either instance, um, you know, California, I'm, I'm a relatively newly minted resident here two years in, uh, has a historic and very dynamic ballot initiative process, but no matter how you use or wield that, the fact is, as we were saying at the top, this is fundamentally about workers. Um, this is about, as you said, making them whole. It's about making sure that there are standards or rules or a way to account for these different business models. And unless you're able, the only way that you're able to resolve the issue, particularly if you want to be able to have an outcome that's favorable for your business as well as those workers, is at some point in these conversations, we got to look back into the eye to our labor colleagues. Um, this might sound silly, but for Postmates, most of you might be familiar with it with Lazy Sunday burrito delivery if you're hungover, but there's also that time where you're sick and you want Robitussin from a CVS or a Walgreens. That's a package off the shelf, but that looks very quickly or could look very quickly to the UPS of tomorrow, or the Teamsters of tomorrow as package delivery. Well, it's not interstate commerce, so when we have that conversation about the distinction in work and not treading on covered union work, we need to be able to look the Teamsters in the eye and have a dialogue about what this work is and what this work isn't. Similarly, when we talk about construction workers, there's no way when we talk about defining on-demand delivery work, we're not talking about that any Tom, Dick, and Harry with an app can all of a sudden qualify to be an independent contractor. We don't want there to just be the creation of an app that then all of the construction workers dispatched to a site are all of a sudden de 
devoid of the panoply of benefits that the building trades have fought for. We need to be able to look the building trades in the eye and have those conversations. So I think that while there will always be political tactics out there, and that's the game. I mean, labor plays this game the most beautifully in this country, and they've seen amazing results. I think it is important for all of us in this room, and one of the biggest takeaways of coming someone that's only worked for labor to line Democrats to now the industry side is that unless you keep your eye on the workers and the stakeholders that you're going to need to work through to get across the finish line, everything else is just Politico and CNN up and down commentary. Let's face it, this, the reason they will spend all that money is this, this is hugely important to both. You know, if the cost could go up 30%, you know, for, for industry. Uh, labor wants, this is a lot of the workers, they could be organizing for this. So this is a very important battle. This will ripple across the country, as we said, the top. It starts in California. We have a question in the front here. Thank you. Um, Michael with the Economist Intelligence Unit. I have one question for Vikram, one question for Jim. So for Vikram, I'm curious whether you think this might, um, you know, AB5 and these related regulations might actually accelerate the shift toward autonomy. I mean, obviously, you know, technology progresses as it does, but I don't think anyone would be surprised tomorrow to wake up and see a headline, you know, Postmates devotes an extra couple billion dollars toward its, you know, delivery robots, right? So just curious to get your thoughts on that. And then for Jim, obviously, you know, we have a ballot initiative coming next year. Lots of money is going to be poured into it. And I'm just curious, if it doesn't go in labor's direction, what's the next step you know, for the workers in that, in that sense? Thanks. We do about four to five delivery, million deliveries per month across 3,000 U.S. cities um, with a workforce that hovers around 350 to 400,000. Nothing about the magic of, of Postmates delivery would happen without our fleet of, of couriers. Um, and those are human individuals handing out, um, looking out for their own lives in various ways. Uh, and so there is no overnight desire for us to all of a sudden supplant this very dynamic supply chain of how we move goods, um, distinct from the way maybe people move uh, people, right? I will say, though, that um, we are proud of the investments we've made in our robotics program, but that's much more focused on micro-mile delivery does the courier really want to pick up something that's across the street, only going to a business center that's also within a few blocks? That's really an attempt to leverage the public right of way in a respectful way and understand like how they can augment the delivery of those goods at the end of the day. And to your question, I think um, workers have only had the right to organize in this country for less than 100 years. People have been working longer than 100 years. People figure out how to organize, whether it's through the law or not. I think we just figure out what we do. I mean, we'd rather not organize under those conditions, right? I mean, workers actually, you know, 1099 workers can't organize a union. If you're an independent contractor, you cannot organize a union because that's an antitrust violation. It's really interesting. So on the worker side, if workers got together and decided they wanted to negotiate wages and rates as independent contractors, it's antitrust, but companies like Postmates and others can organize workers into those things and, and de determine price to them, right? So to me, it's like this contradiction in law. And so I think we have to figure out, you know, we have to fight this initiative. We also have to figure out what's coming next and how do we actually create the opportunity for workers to organize and have power, right? And is it in the vehicle of a union as it exists today? I don't, I, you know, maybe we also have to think about how we reorganize ourselves and how we distribute power within our organizations. There's been a lot of discussions about that, but I will end with, you know, fundamentally, everybody wants the right to dignity, respect, yep. and be able to make a living, right? And as long as unions stand up for that stuff, we'll always have a place in this world. And I, I think part of that, evolution and tough thought goes two ways, like in the same way, like we also have to figure out what that configuration of voice looks like beyond kind of the corporate approach, right? Absolutely. I, I was curious, just to jump in, how do you think this does ripple across the country? Because there are 28 states that are right-to-work states, 
Uh, do you, how do you think California is a very union friendly state, one of a dwindling number of them? How does this roll out across the country, or, or does it? Uh, one, I know other states are very interested in actually talking through this. Um, uh, one of my colleagues has been engaged in some of these conversations in, in other markets like New York. Um, we are continuing to have conversations in markets like Washington. But I think what's incumbent upon us is to experiment in those states where maybe the laws um, don't look like what they do here in California or New York. And what, by that, I mean, um, what, what's interesting is in New York, whether you like it or, or don't, um, for any of you that have taken an Uber ride out there, you'll see that surcharge going into the black car fund, which is a way for uh, certain drivers and, and livery drivers to be able to unlock different types of benefits. Um, that model might be worth exploring for a company like ours or any of our competitors in a, in a different state where they want to say like, hey, we want to try out this experiment from a policy perspective. If we capitalize money to raise a benefits fund, like we've talked to the governor about, we've talked to labor about, how does that work in other markets? And so I think from a Postmates perspective, particularly to the credence of we need to be able to continue to work with labor, taking a look at these other models and piloting them, piloting them there is going to be really, really important. I think also companies like ours need to be able to be mindful of where there's a line of concern and where there isn't. There's an there's pro-labor card check legislation in front of Congress right now in front of the House Ed and Labor Committee. Um, we've told the chairman of that committee and his staff directly, we do not oppose this. We think that strong, strengthening labor protections and laws of this country can only be good. But if you want to have that for this form of work, let's maybe not necessarily index on the exact same test that's come forth in California, but come up with a different framework that actually speaks to what just Jim laid out, which is maybe we need to be amending certain federal laws. Maybe tax laws need to be changed and simplified. I think that conversation uh, is important for companies to not just cut down what seem to be pro-labor laws just for the sake of, in the same way we shouldn't be allergic to regulations. Instead, we should be inviting those along, and that comes back to coming back in the room with labor. So, uh... Yes, 28 states, 28 states are right to work, but the strongest local union in the country is in a right to work state. And that's Culinary Workers 226 in Las Vegas. They have 98% density, 98% membership. So again, it comes back to a priority for the organization. How do we actually engage members and workers in, this, in the struggle to actually have power at their workplace? How we construct that and how that's done within the law, right, will be shaped by each individual states. I think it's more about, in some ways, this is a wake up call in a real way for the rest of labor across the country to say, we're gonna to have to really deal with some of these issues. You know, if this is like a really big line that's growing, you know, in, in the way that work is shaped is that more and more companies are gonna to try to put independent contractor status, then we have to figure out how to fight that and also think about how we organize ourselves around that. Good question in the back. There are independent contractors that drive people around every day. They're called taxi drivers. The issue is the medallion system that the company decided to exploit around. Same thing. Rest, there's another industry where people work multiple jobs, sometimes two restaurants, sometimes they go to school. It's called the restaurant industry. They're subject to all the same labor laws. Is this going to lead to more tech companies thinking about what's wrong with the overall system of how we do business that we can help the larger business community do and solve and related to labor, not just so niche, like I'm concerned about my specific workers? Because changes in labor laws would help restaurants out a lot as well. Mm -hmm. And and figuring things out around the medallion situation when, in places where you have taxi drivers committing suicide because they owe a million dollars for a medallion, medallion that's valueless. I mean, that's really kind of what this is about, is how can we do a better job with the tech industry, especially in kind of identifying these labor problems and using 
the ability that you have to, to move the needle for not just yourselves, but for others. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with anything in that point. I think it is important for us to not only not import bad practices that have played out historically in other industries, um, elevate our standards as well. But I'll go back to this point about, frankly, experimentation, right? Recognizing that workforce issues are holistic. They're not just about should they be an independent contractor or an employee. Right now, for example, um, we are working with a labor-informed group to actually experiment across income volatility and what it means to need to access emergency cash on demand because we have a hyper-mobile workforce that's stitching together different jobs, taking those learnings back to labor, back to our colleagues here, back to peers and back to lawmakers is going to be important. What Jim mentioned earlier, we also have a very hyper-mobile workforce of adult learners. So right now we've enrolled 12, my colleague Claire has been spearheading this program, we'll be enrolling 12 classes of Postmates here in this region and expanding to Southern California and enroll them into different learning programs at different stages in their life to get everything from how do you write a LinkedIn resume to I want CRM skills or coding skills in this upskilling capacity. So to answer your point, I think whether it's on career development and having a mobile workforce, whether it's on labor lessons and having a mobile workforce, or even what we did today with Mayor Reed and announced that we are giving back our tax dollars from Prop C into housing and affordability issues, we ought to all collectively do better. But I think that recognizes that, that sorry, that also has to come with the recognition that the companies that are also trying to create these products are not inherently trying to do so with a malice intent are backing into and stumbling into decades-long labor conversations, we can take stock of that in the same way that all parties can take stock of that and try and figure out how do we square some of that. It's going to be tough, and it's going to result in a lot of column inches about how you're, you're retrenching into your corners, but unless government gets together with industry and with labor, that retrenchment is only going to continue. So we can teach each other to elevate those standards, but we're also going to need some working partnership, not a sparring-based partnership, in order to get some of this stuff across the finish line. You want, you want government to step in like uh, Governor Newsom was a little bit slow in stepping in on this, this situation. Yeah, you know, I wrote. <laughs> his, his administration it has been trying to contend with a lot of different forces and headwinds. Yeah completely get that. Also, a lot of different dynamics. In the same way, tech is not monolithic. We're moving burritos. We're not moving people. Similarly, labor is not monolithic. So I think we are very encouraged by and happy that he has pledged a worker forward process for tech companies and excited to see where that moves. We have a question on the side there? All right. We have two more. Two more. Okay. Hi. Thank you, too. Um, so I actually want to point out and highlight just something that Vikram, you mentioned earlier before about how um, gig work has allowed um, f- folks who are formerly incarcerated and immigrants an opportunity to work and contribute to, um, to, to make a living, in essence. Um, and I was hoping that you guys can dive, both of you, can, if you guys can dive a little deeper in terms of where AB5 would leave these workers, um, the path towards empowerment towards these workers with AB5, or maybe it would lead to a path of um, making it more difficult for them to work. Our union, UFCW, has been at the forefront of sort of criminal justice reform. You know, we uh, were the first union to endorse Proposition 47, which, you know, changed the way that misdemeanors and felonies are written. Prop 57 was an additional piece on that. We've actually run uh, and have partnered with some of our employers to run uh, Prop 47 clinics, which ultimately would help them scrub their record clean, and then we place them into jobs. And so I think the question of whether, you know, formerly incarcerated get access to jobs is separate and apart from the question of status of, of work, right? I think, I think it's more about, you know, what are companies doing? And, I, you know, I applaud companies like Postmates and others who, 
who are like, we're going to reach out to this community because those communities are really isolated. But labor's been doing that forever. I mean, your labor unions, building trades have a whole program where they run and they do apprenticeship programs and they run people into the, you know, into these apprentice programs to then get jobs. I mean, the former, the chair of the California Democratic Party, Rusty Hicks, used to run the LA Labor Fed. He ran a program that got 5,000 formerly incarcerated into construction trade jobs. So this is happening outside of this conversation. Uh, and we're fully committed to continuing that to make happen. We just want to make sure that when they get these jobs, they have rights. Hi, my name's Andrew. Jim, question for you. Um, you mentioned that the percentage of gig or independent contractors has been static over time. Um, and the labor movement is unfortunately perhaps at its weakest point in quite some time. So why, from a strategic perspective, when we have 90% of the workers, many of them certainly not well served by employers, um, why focus on this part of the workforce um, as opposed to, and maybe it's not a, either yeah, a choice, yeah, but interested sort of in your strategy, because it seems to me like there's a lot of folks working um, for very low wages as W-2 workers who could really use the help as well. It's a great question. Uh, union density is low. Um, we, you know, I spend every day talking to non-union workers, so we are going out and organizing non-union workers. Uh, so we're not just focused on this one thing. But what I will say is, the sort of broader perspective on this is, we cannot allow a shift to happen in terms of how workers are defined, because if workers are defined, if if there is a move, so it has been re relatively constant. But who's to say twenty years down the road that that doesn't happen? You know, and and. If we are allowed to, if we allow sort of laws to sort of, and companies to use these type of independent contractors more and more, then they don't even have any rights in, our, in, in the density decreases. So I'll give you an example. We represent grocery stores. We have this big issue right now within our grocery stores related to Instacart because we represent workers within the grocery store at Safeway. Safeway also has Safeway.com. We, we represent the workers that pick the orders, put the orders into the trucks, and then deliver them to your house. Well, Instacart does the same thing. Right? So Instacart comes into the store, picks the order, goes and delivers it to your house. So those Instacart workers are not employees. The Safeway workers are employees. So all of a sudden, Safeway is going, well, we're allowed to do this. We're allowed to do this. So why don't we just get rid of all of our dot-com workers and, make the, and do it with Instacart? So there's, there's a slow creep into this business. And we just need to make sure that in order to compete on a fair marketplace, that you start at the same, you start at the same playing field. Right? And so that for us, it's, like we're, it's not an either or. It's a, it, it's a, it's a both. Right, and we just gotta figure out how to continue to do that. And we gotta, and I would say the last thing is, and this is part of this discussion, is we need real labor law reform in this country. Uh, union density in the United States is at nine percent in the private sector. In the, in Europe, it's at about thirty-eight percent. In Canada, it's at thirty-three percent. Why is it that they're dealing with the same global market forces, and yet union density is higher in those countries than in ours? It's because we've had a legal system that is 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 aggressively anti-union and a business community that is aggressively anti-union. You know, we, they're taught and, you know, business leaders are taught, CEOs and others, since no one stays at one company for long, if union comes into your company, you're, you're seen as a failure. Why is it that, un, that leader, executive leaderships of businesses in America see the union, you know, organizing as a failure in their business, whereas in Europe, they see it as a partner? I think that's a, a larger fundamental question that we have to that we have to wrestle with. And I think it's an opportunity here. Maybe we can reform that debate with tech if they're interested. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would just add to that, that I think across all of our peers, nothing could be, that, that is spot on. And I think that that is a, lesson, a major lesson learned um, being former from government now in industry that you recognize nothing's going to move without that. I will say kind of something that wasn't um, maybe captured in headlines over the arc of the last year is that 
all of our peers in the in the space, whether it's Instacart, whether it's Lyft, whether it's Uber, whether it's DoorDash, ourselves, Caviar, I think we all aim to try and make overtures uh, to the labor community to try and ensure that we could have these conversations. And I have no doubt that that will only continue to persist. But I think one of our biggest lessons learned and takeaway is that insofar as we talk about innovation in our models and what these apps do, there's also a lot of innovation that we can learn in how you adapt for the worker voice for these new models that you guys have been pioneering around. So I think there's kudos on both sides and I appreciate your continued partnership on that. We have one more in the back. Thank you all of you for starting a very thoughtful conversation tonight and hopefully not concluding it. Just a, a point of reflection on the future of work and labor and industry working together. It was only a few months ago when labor leaders like David Rolfe and progressive Democrats like Senator Warner were charting a path for a third way. The conversation just a few months ago was a conversation about not jamming a square peg into a round hole. There was progress. And now it seems like we find ourselves in a zero-sum game out of the blue. How did we get here? And what happened to the conversation about the third way? It's, a, it's an interesting question. I'm trying to figure out how to... So here's what I would say. I, I think that, you know, nothing is ever constant. Everything's sort of, you know, things are in flux as things move on throughout the legislative session and throughout the legislative process. I think there were mistakes made on both sides in terms of how to actually deal with these issues. Fundamentally, when you're in negotiations, I looked at this as like a labor negotiation, say, where on the one side we have business, on the other side we have labor. You know, at some point we're at the table, we're talking, we're talking, we're talking, and all of a sudden we you come to disagreement, you can't get past that. So labor goes one way and says, we're going to move this legislation. We have the support and the votes. And then business says, we're going to do this initiative. So then it's like, who's going to blink first, right? So it's almost like building up to sort of a strike, right? Like, do we get to that strike or can we come back together? And I'm not saying we're at that point. I think there's a way to come back together because I think the stakes are higher. And I also think this conversation about the future of work is greater than just classification of the workers. I think that's a fundamental piece, but it's also about all the other things that we didn't get to talk to today about the future of work when it comes to you know, uh, you know, data security and information between the workers, right? Consumer, you know, consumer, you know, data, like all these different things that are also about the future, AI and its implementation and work and how people adapt to it. These are all huge issues, right? And I, I, I hope, I think there's a lot in the labor community that hope that this doesn't end the discussion, but that it sort of re it helps us recalibrate to say, okay, all right, we dealt with that one issue. Let, let's try to get through that. Now, how do we deal with all these other issues? Because, you know, neither industry nor labor is going away anytime soon. And we're going to be working in these spaces. So we have to figure out a way to work together on certain issues. We're not always going to agree, but we got to at least figure out a way to have communication work together. Well, thank you all. That uh, seems like a nice place to end it. I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank the folks at The Bridge and Alley for organizing this event today. I'd like to thank Postmates for hosting it and Vikram and Jim for being the guests. I'd like to thank The King King Kaufman for producing today's podcast along with Karen Creighton. And remember, whether you're an independent contractor or an employee, it's all political. It's all political as part of the San Francisco Chronicle podcast network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks. <laughs>